Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. Today's sermon is entitled, Redeeming the Time by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. I've always been a fan of time travel movies. The thought of going back to see how things used to be or forward to see how things will be has always fascinated and captured my imagination. In 1985, the blockbuster movie Back to the Future uh, became one of the most popular time travel films to hit the screen in years, and it still remains a pioneering movie in that genre. If you've seen it, you might remember that Michael J. Fox plays the role of Marty McFly, a teenager that uh, travels back in time to 1955 when his parents are in high school. While there, he accidentally interferes with their uh, meeting and courtship and accidentally causes them to not meet, which means they potentially won't marry and he won't be born and his future existence is threatened. And so the rest of the movie, of course, involves Marty working with his good friend, uh, Doc Brown, played by the hilarious Christopher Lloyd, to try and repair the past and put it back together so his future is secured again, so he can get back to the future. The story, of course, assumes that you can change your past and improve your future. I wonder how many of us uh, here today wish that we could hop in a DeLorean and go back in time and fix something in our past. I know I, I would like to. I think if we were all honest, we would all admit that we have regrets from our past and that we wish we could fix some things or maybe even permanently erase some things. But God doesn't want us to erase our past. He wants to redeem it and use it. And that's the encouragement I want to share with you today from the scriptures. We're going to take a break today from our Titus series called Radiant Church, and we'll resume that next week. The title of this message is Redeeming the Time. I want to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1. If you uh, have a Bible app, open it up on your phone or tablet. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and uh, we can loan one to you. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, I also want to encourage you to follow along with me using the sermon note handout from the uh, worship folder that you received this morning. And if you only remember one thing uh, during our short time together, here's uh, what I call the big idea, or the sermon in a sentence. If I could boil it down to one simple sentence, it would be this. Uh, The Lord wants to use your past to bless your future. The Lord wants to use your past to bless your future. Uh, 1 Timothy is a training letter written by the Apostle Paul to one of his sons in the faith, Timothy. Uh, Timothy was a young man leading the church in the city of Ephesus. This is one of Paul's last letters that he ever wrote before uh, the end of his ministry. It's believed that Timothy, while young and gifted, 
was also insecure and struggled with gaining respect from older church members. Thus, 1 Timothy is a practical letter, an encouraging one, designed to equip the young pastor to not only live out his faith, but to lead uh, the church in Ephesus. So, uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 12 to 17. This is one of my favorite passages in the entire uh, scriptures, all the Bible, uh, because of what Paul says here. So follow along with me as I read. In verse 12, Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Here's uh, four things that I think we can glean from this passage, four truths uh, that Paul is conveying, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to Timothy. The first point on your outline is that past failures should remind us we are all sinful. Past failures should remind us that we are all sinful. Paul says in verse 13, I was a blasphemer. It means that he said things about God and to God that were not true. He was a persecutor. He's referring to uh, his previous life, which is well documented in the book of Acts, where Paul uh, mocked Christians and arrested them and had them put in jail and executed. He was an insolent opponent, it says in the ESV, uh, meaning he arrogantly and violently injured others. He was insolent, filled with pride. Paul is describing the sin-filled, self-centered, and self-destructive life he lived before he surrendered his heart to Christ. And in Paul's brief description here of his testimony before he knew the Lord, I, I recall my own foolish actions and things I did, having, getting saved at age 19. I, I have memories still of stupid things I said about the Lord and people I hurt and sin that I pursued trying to satisfy that hole in my heart that only Christ could fill. And so when I read this, I can identify with what Paul's saying and I feel conviction and shame and, and some of you, I'm sure, can relate as well. But Paul goes on to explain that he received an abundance of grace and mercy from the Lord. You've heard me talk recently about grace and how we cannot grasp or understand God's grace unless we understand our depravity, our selfishness, and how lost we are. Because our selfishness and depravity and our pride is what brought on God's grace. It's what requires, so you can't have one without the other. 
So Paul explains then, how, how did he receive this grace and mercy from the Lord? Here's letter A on your outline. Uh, repentance unlocks God's grace and mercy. It's documented in other places in the New Testament, but also in Acts, that in Acts chapter 9, when Paul first met the Lord, and then in Acts 22 and 26, he shares his testimony. You might remember from the early chapters of Acts, Paul spent his years trying to purge Christianity from this earth. He arrested and jailed and murdered believers. But in Acts 9, Jesus radically interrupted his life and just dropped an anvil on his head and humbled him and brought him to faith. The term repentance in the original language of the New Testament is the word metaneo. It means to change your mind in such a way that it leads to a complete turnabout of your life. It means to turn from sin back to God. That's what Paul did. Repentance is necessary, along with faith, to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ, but it's also necessary to maintain one. Believers are called to a lifestyle of repentance because we will continue to sin but we can maintain our relationship with the Lord by repenting of that sin and asking him to forgive us, and he will. The importance of repentance is underscored by the fact that Jesus started out his earthly ministry in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. And the very first words, first message that came out of Jesus' mouth were, Repent and believe in the Lord. So Paul says in verse 13, if you look back at your text, But I... That's a key word, but. I call it a pivot when we're doing Bible study. Uh, a pivot is where in the previous sentence or verses, there's one concept being talked about or a problem being set up. And then Paul, he often did this. He would then start another sentence with, but. Meaning, here's a change of direction. This happened instead of allowing that to continue. And so Paul says, he couldn't continue being a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent because then in the second half of verse 13, but I received mercy. Several years ago, somebody taught me to remember mercy in this way, and here's letter B on your outline. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. It's not getting what you do deserve. And in our case, mine included, God is holy and just, so he must punish sin. But God is also merciful and sometimes withholds punishment, although we are as guilty as sin. When our oldest daughter, Gabrielle, was just three years old, her mother and I learned that the Lord had given us a strong-willed child. And some of you, um, well, I think this is probably common with firstborns, uh, I think the Lord wires them to be strong-willed so they can be responsible and leaders and helpful and good big brothers and big sisters. But we had also, Maya and I had also learned from the scriptures that we, uh, we needed to reflect the Lord's character accurately to Gabrielle by uh, loving her, but also loving her firmly through discipline and, and disciplining her to rein in her sin nature and shape her heart. And so, just like all of us, when we were kids, Gabrielle got timeouts and grounding and spankings when she was disobedient. However, there were certain times we weren't able to follow through with giving a timeout or a grounding or a spanking. And 
Those of you that have had kids, you know there's, you know, you had those moments in a restaurant or you're at the grocery store or something, and it's like, the la- this is the worst time for you to be disobedient. You know, like, can you just obey now? Because I can't give you a consequence right now. It would look like I'm a child abuser if I did it or something, you know? So, so if you could just save your disobedience for when we get home, it would really make my job easier. And so um, in order to kind of redeem those moments, we would uh, tell her, we're going to show you mercy. And we ended up showing her mercy at home as well, but we taught her that mercy is not getting what you do deserve. And you deserve a spanking or being grounded or a timeout, but we're not gonna do that this time. Well, fast forward a few months later, and Gabrielle is watching a worship DVD on the living room TV. And uh, before playing another song, the worship pastor took a moment to set up the next song, which happened to be about mercy. And so he's explaining God's mercy, and. As she stands in front of the TV, Gabrielle turned around and announced to the whole house with great joy, Mercy! I love mercy! (laughs) Which, of course, in her little three-year-old mind meant no spankings, no grounding, and no time out. I got away with it. I got away with my sin. And so uh, I always think of that when I I read mercy or study it in the scriptures because it's, you know, it's... It's just always fascinating how the Lord uses children to teach us theology. And so uh, I think of that also, mercy. Man, I love mercy because it means I didn't get what I deserved from God. It means that through Jesus Christ, I didn't get what I deserved. I deserved his wrath. I deserved punishment. I deserved death for my sin. I deserve it for every time I lose my temper at home. I deserve it for every time I gossip, slander, or I'm prideful, or I have a critical spirit. Just one sin. I deserve death, and yet I've received mercy through Jesus Christ. Look at verse 14, where Paul then describes grace. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me. Another reason for Paul's gratitude and sense of indebtedness to Christ was the grace that he had been shown. Not a little bit of grace. It's important to note that key word there in your Bible. It was an abundance of grace or an overflowing of grace. It always reminds me of those, um, maybe you've seen them at weddings or You'd see them outside at maybe uh, uh, public uh, buildings, a fountain that overflows from one level to the next level to the next level. And, and I always think of that when I read this passage, a grace that's it's just overflowing. So, so there was too much grace to be held in the top level, and then it goes down to the bigger bowl, and there's t- too much grace for that. And so it just overflows down to the bigger bowl at the very bottom of the fountain, and then it just keeps on overflowing, and so it just goes down into the very bottom and just gets recycled. I just think of fountains like that. God's grace overflowed. Here's letter C. So what is grace? Well, grace is getting what you don't deserve. So I learned years ago that mercy is not getting what you do deserve, and grace is getting what you don't deserve. The Lord shows us grace when he blesses us despite our sinfulness, despite our selfishness, our pride, our lack of faith. The mercy and grace of Jesus Christ work together so that God can have a relationship with us and use us to do great things without compromising the holiness of his character. And his grace and mercy allow him to do it without justifying our sin, without lowering his standards, 
I think there are several things that Paul's trying to communicate here to Timothy to encourage him and trying to communicate to us. To the unbeliever, to the person that has not yet received Christ as their Savior, I think, I think he's trying to tell unbelievers, you don't have to clean up your life before trusting Christ because you never can clean it up enough. It'll never be clean enough. If you could clean your life up enough to become good enough to be accepted by Christ, then you wouldn't need his grace and mercy anymore. He's also telling the person with a painful or sinful past. Those things don't define you, and they don't limit how God wants to use you. And I think he's telling the average Christ follower, maybe who's been praying for years that their loved one would come to know Christ. I think Paul is telling them in these verses, God can save anybody. Nobody's beyond the grace and mercy of God. No, no hard-hearted, prideful sinner is beyond it. Nobody, you can't look at anybody on this earth and say, oh man, they're too far gone. They're just, they're too proud. They will never come to faith in Christ. Oh yeah, what about Paul? I wonder how many people disqualified Paul from ever, you know, getting saved. In fact, we know from the book of Acts that after Paul did get saved and he went around, it took some time for the early believers to believe he was actually for real, that, that he actually was born again, obviously because he had done great harm to the church. So there were some trust issues early on when Paul just got born again. So our, our past failures should remind us that we're all sinful. Now, I've always wished that the Lord would have removed my sin nature when I got saved in college. Um, however, Paul gives us some insight on why the Lord doesn't do this. So here's number two on your outline. Our current struggle with sin keeps us humble. Our current struggle with sin keeps us humble. In verse 15, Paul says, Christ came into the world to save sinners. Paul starts this verse here by giving us one of the most succinct descriptions of the gospel in the entire New Testament. Jesus Christ didn't come into the world because we made mistakes or in order to make us better people. No, he came because we all have rebelled against a holy God. And that holy God exercises his justice by punishing sin. But the same God also who punishes sin has provided a way to be saved from the consequences of sin by sacrificing his son for us. Then Paul reemphasizes the awareness he has of his own depravity in verse 15, of whom I am the foremost, by the way. He's not a, establishing a gradient for evil in a system of sin, uh, but instead we know that God looks at all sin as all evil. It's all the same, whether we murder Christians like Paul or just drive a few miles over the speed limit. It's all sin. Or we tell a white lie. Or vote Democrat. No, I'm just kidding. Just, just kidding. Just kidding. Um, but, but note, Paul says, note the present tense of the verb, I am. So he's speaking in the current tense. He's been walking with the Lord for many years, and yet he still considers himself the chief of all sinners. So there's no pride that he has in, in his progressive sanctification as he's grown in the Lord and maybe has dealt with some sin patterns and gotten some victory over those. He's still not proud of that. He's not bragging or boasting because he still sees his own sin. I remember reading a, a great quote from, I think it was Charles Spurgeon that said this, but he said, the closer you get to the Lord, the more aware of your sinfulness you should 
become. The holier you get, the more aware of your sinfulness you should be. So although forgiven, Paul, in his past, kept him humble because it reminded him of what his sin nature is capable of doing today if he doesn't walk closely with the Lord. I think Paul's realizing that he's just one decision from going back to what he used to be. And that that sin nature, that tendency to rebel against God still resided in his heart. Despite all the amazing things that the Lord had done through Paul, he still calls himself the very least of the saints in Ephesians 3.8. Or the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle in 1 Corinthians 15.9. It's amazing how the awareness of Paul's depravity, his own awareness, keeps him humble. Which I find amazing because it's shocking to me how many prideful Christians I've met during my years in ministry. How many prideful Christians that are so good at picking apart everybody else, or so good at criticizing the world, and yet they seem to have forgotten the very sin that made it necessary for them to know Christ. Now, although Paul had been forgiven for his sin, the blessings and the success he had gotten to see in his ministry didn't go to his head. He retained a keen understanding of his lostness and he desired a consistent, intimate relationship with the Lord, and so he, he kept short accounts with the Lord. And it's a reminder, I think, to us in our struggle for sin, we have to continue to press into the Lord because he's the only one that can help us in the struggle. I once read a story about the great missionary pioneer, C.T. Studd. And that's with two Ds, by the way. Um, I... He was on a missionary journey, and he was sharing a room with a young man. And in the middle of the night, C.T. awoke before daybreak and was huddled in a corner, wrapped in a blanket, and poring over his Bible by candlelight. Concerned that something was wrong, his roommate asked, What are you doing? Are you okay? To which C.T. replied, I couldn't sleep because I felt I had something wrong in my relationship with the Lord. And so I've been reading through the New Testament to check on his commands to me in case I have been disobedient. And I find that story amazing because he, he, I get the sense from the things I've read about C.T. said that he was so intimately related to the Lord that he could tell when there was just a millimeter of distance between he and the Lord. As we sang earlier, the song Holy Spirit, the, we, asked, we asked God to help us become more aware of his presence. And, and here's C.T. Studd waking up in the middle of the night, sensing that there's just a small distance between him and the Lord. And he just want, he, he couldn't stand that distance. So he quickly, wanted, he didn't put it off. He didn't go back to bed. He didn't wait a day. It was right now. I, I need to deal with this. I need to make sure because I can't go another minute even sleeping without being connected to my Lord. I, I, as I read that story about C.T. said, I wonder if there's anybody here that maybe has been procrastinating or putting off 
maybe some sin or, or something that the Lord has told you to do in his word and you've been delaying it, putting it off, procrastinating, I don't want to do it, and it's put some distance between you and him. Or maybe you've been sensing in your spirit, things ain't right between me and the Lord, but I really don't want to deal with it because I just don't want to deal with it. And I just wonder maybe if you need to do what C.T. Studd did and get alone and pray and open the word because the Lord's waiting on you and he'll be there waiting but the move has to be yours. So our current struggle with sin keeps us humble and dependent on the Lord. Here's the third truth that Paul reveals to us in this passage. Number three is that Jesus redeems our past to make us an example. He redeems our past to make us an example. In verse 16, uh, Paul says, but I received mercy. It's the second time he says it in the passage. Remember how he says it in verse 13? Well, he comes back and says it again, but I receive mercy. It's meant to contrast what he just said in the previous verse. Again, verse 15, talking about his sin. Verse 16, talking about the mercy of God. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me is the foremost. Second time he's using that word as well. Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. An example of what? An example that God can save anybody and change their life. Anybody. The scriptures are loaded with examples of broken lives and broken hearts that the Lord used to do awesome things. For example, I was reminded of Moses. Moses, in Exodus, killed a man when he tried to do God's will and man's timing. The Lord eventually used Moses to write the first five books of the Old Testament and to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. Then there's David, King David. Oh, what a life he lived. He committed adultery, committed murder. Yet, the Lord used him to take the kingdom of Israel to heights they'd never seen before. And eventually, the Lord calls David a man after his own heart. And his walk with the Lord is chronicled throughout most of the book of Psalms. Then there's Peter in the New Testament who denied knowing Jesus three times after it was predicted that he would do so. And then he did it. Well, then he was restored and used to preach the gospel and see thousands come to faith in Christ in the book of Acts. And then, of course, we know there's Paul who... Besides being an enemy of the church, an enemy of the church, excuse me, his conversion, we also know uh, after he was converted, he wasn't trained to speak publicly. He lacked polish in his appearance and demeanor, and he was in poor health. And yet God used him to plant many churches and to launch the gospel out into the world and to write most of the New Testament. Yeah, well, you know, Kerry, those are, those are dead old guys. They don't really know the times we're living in. Well, here's a couple examples from recent history that I thought of, of men whose lives were redeemed, whose past mistakes were redeemed and used for good. There's Chuck Colson. He was the first person on Richard Nixon's staff in the early 70s to be incarcerated after the Watergate scandal. He gave his life to Jesus Christ just before going to prison. And then after he got out of prison, started the ministry called Prison Fellowship, which has led thousands of prisoners to faith in Jesus. And for many years until his death, I think in 2012, Colson was a 
national radio show host, speaker, and author through whom thousands of prisoners came to faith. And then there's Dave Ramsey. thought of him. He got wealthy in real estate investments back in the mid-80s, but he was in his 20s, foolish, and made a series of poor decisions and ended up going bankrupt and lost everything he had. But after recommitting his life to Christ and studying what the Bible has to say about money, he began counseling couples in his church on how to manage their, their money that God had given them. And years later, he now helps thousands of people get out of debt through his nationally syndicated radio show and appearances on Fox News and writes books and teaches seminars like Financial Peace University. And I could go on. Notice also in verse 16, he says, I was saved to be an example to those who were to believe in him. It's future tense. I think he's saying the Lord wants to use your story and my story to reach people that have not yet received Christ. Because as I said earlier, you and I are all examples of what God can do. We are walking pictures of God's grace and mercy, and we each have a testimony of how God interrupted our lives. That is, if you've received Christ, and we can talk about here's who I was before Christ, and here's who I am now, and here's how he reached me and changed me and what he's done for me. And that story has great power for people that don't know Christ yet. So Jesus wants to redeem our past to make us an example of here's the kind of people that God can save. Look at their stories, thousands of them. And they're all unique and special. Here's the fourth and final truth that Paul tells us, and that is that Jesus deserves glory for anything admirable we do. He deserves glory for anything admirable we do. Because of God's grace and mercy, because we were born in sin and depravity and lost and rebellious, and, and again, those that have been saved and been born again by trusting Christ for salvation, Paul says, because of all these things in my life, I give glory for anything I do to the Lord. I can't take credit for anything. I can't... He can't even take credit for taking out the trash right. It's just, the Lord deserves credit for that. So, so Paul closes this section with what scholars call a doxology. It comes from the Greek word doxa, which means glory. And the word doxology is really a compound word, so it means literally word of glory. It's a short song of praise, as I read earlier in the service from Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Well, here's another one. Another doxology. Paul did this often in his New Testament letters. He would teach some theology for a few paragraphs, and then all of a sudden he just kind of would pause and then write a doxology to the Lord. Just like he just spontaneously would go, you know, I think I need to praise God right there. And so he's just writing this out, and you know what, I think I just need to praise the Lord and give him a word of glory right now. He does the same thing in Romans 11, just as he did in Ephesians 3. Simply put, a doxology is a brief phrase or a set of verses that express praise and glory to God for who he is and what he's done. So notice in verse 17, it's interesting in this doxology, he says, to the king of ages. 
What that tells me is that he, I think he's referring to God's providential reign over all of time. If you think of ages as like seasons on a timeline, if you were to break world history down or break your life down into certain ages, well, this is who I was in my 20s and my 30s and my 40s and so on and so forth. Paul's saying he's the king of all ages in your life and even before you were born. Well, what's that mean? It means that his hand was on your life before you came to know him, and his hand is on your life after. It means that Paul was able to look back on his own life and see God's hand at work, orchestrating events, moving chess pieces on the chessboard to bring Paul to faith in Christ. Can you see that? Are you able to reflect and see how the Lord has worked in your life and to see his hand painting the tapestry of your story. So Paul is saying that God deserves glory for anything praiseworthy that we do because he gave us breath, he gave us strength, he gave us the talent that we have. In fact, I'm remembering in 1 Corinthians, I think it's 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, what do you have that you were not given? And the answer to the rhetorical question is nothing. Nothing. So, he deserves glory for anything admirable that we do. So if you get a good grade on a test, it shouldn't be, look at me, I'm awesome, look at what I did. It should be, praise Jesus. You get a promotion at work, it shouldn't be, hey, congratulate me, everybody on Facebook, because I got a promotion at work. Now, I know we don't say it like that, but that's what we mean. It should be, praise the Lord, I did something admirable because he helped me. You see, because based on what Paul says in verses 12 and 13 and 14 and 15, we're not capable of doing anything admirable on our own apart from the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. So, when you have a growing personal relationship with Jesus Christ, there's no need to go back in time to fix your past. Because the Lord wants to use your past to bless your future. If you'd like to learn more about how to have your sins forgiven and to begin a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, I'd love to talk to you after the service about that. Because we don't want you to leave today without knowing him. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you. As I said this morning in our pre-service prayer, it's difficult to come up with the words and it's difficult to say them enough to thank you for your mercy and overflowing grace that you have shown and offered through your son Jesus Christ. Father, thank you that you are able to take our mistakes or sin that was committed against us. You were able to take sins we've committed, maybe even unwise choices, and able to redeem them, to cash them in for something better. You're able to turn our failures into successes. 
our losses into gains. Lord, I just want to pray for those uh, here today or maybe listening online that might be ashamed of past sin. Lord, would you just remind them of the truths that have been recorded in Scripture? That Jesus died for that sin and that if they've sincerely repented of it and trusted Christ, that you have as it says in the Old Testament, tossed that sin out into the sea and remembered it no more. Father, for those that have been wounded by the sin of others, I know I have, and there are others here that have been, and like me, they may be waiting for the redemption of, of when, when are you going to use that for good? When are you going to bring some good out of that, Lord? you help them and help me to rely on Romans 8, 28 and 29 to remember that for those who love Christ Jesus, you will work all things together for good. And Lord, for those that have not been saved yet from their sin, they're still living in bondage, shame, guilt, would you reveal Jesus to them? Would you help them to see that you desire a relationship with them through your son. And would you open their eyes and help them let go of their sin and turn to you and follow you with their whole heart so they can have peace and forgiveness and eternal life and access to you in prayer. Thank you again, Lord, for Paul's testimony and how it encourages us and reminds us of the truths of the gospel. Please, Lord, use these truths today and tomorrow and as we go back into our week. Bring them back to our minds with the Spirit and remind us of what we've learned, Lord, so that we can be encouraged as we go out in the community and live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.